I just think it has the ability to really align systems within the college. After SNAP 5050, I've seen the workforce and the adult ed and the student services and the basic needs and security food pantry folks working together in a really different way. Um, it has the opportunity to transform partnerships in the community. And it, because of its flexibility, it really can close the gap that colleges struggle to provide for students. Sometimes I think colleges may view us as the intermediary as big brother. And I just had to establish that relationship. You're the expert on what's going on on your campus. So I'm not telling you how to do what you're doing. I'm basically asking you, what are you doing on your campus and how we can make snappy and see fit with what you're already doing. This is In the Know with ACCT, the voice of community college leaders. I'm Kaylee Woods. On this episode of In the Know, we're diving deeper into the inner workings of the SNAP ENT grant program. Which contract structure is best suited for your institution? ACCT's Steve Jerch sits down with Nicole Braxton and Kate Kinder to talk about the pros and cons of using an intermediary model. My name is Steve Jerch, and I am the director of the Center for Policy and Practice at ACCT. This is our second episode in our SNAP employment and training discussion as part of our participation in a national partnership grant from the USDA Food and Nutrition Services that the American Public Human Services Association received about two and a half years ago. And if you remember in our first episode, we talked, we talked with Brandy Weissman from APHSA, who gave us an overview on the project and how human service agencies play a part in SNAP employment and training. So today we're looking at another aspect of the project, which is what does it look like for a community college to contract with their state agency to become a third party provider of SNAP employment and training. So to help us understand the different models, I'm joined today by Nicole Braxton, who is the coordinator of student support for the Louisiana Community and Technical College System, where she serves as the agency liaison between LCTCS colleges and the Department of Child and Family Services at the state and Kate Kinder, who is the State Strategies Director for Western States at the National Skills Coalition. Prior to her role at NSC, Kate served as the Dean of Career Pathways and Skills Training at Portland Community College, where she was integral in developing and leading the consortia of the 17 Oregon Community Colleges in their SNAP Employment and Training Program. So thank you both for being here. Um, and I'd like to start with Kate, if I could. Um, so SNAP Employment and Training is a very unique program that can really help individuals move towards skill building and economic independence. So if you could give us just a very brief overview of what SNAP Employment and Training is. Thank you so much for having us, Steve, and for the chance to have this opportunity to discuss SNAP ENT. So I would definitely reference back to APHSA and Brandy's explanation of what SNAP e-employment and training is, but in terms of thinking about it from the college angle and community colleges, I really think of SNAP ENT or SNAP employment training as the broad umbrella of services that states can provide to recipients of SNAP to increase their educational attainment, connection to career pathways, and economic mobility. And within that, the program that colleges are likely most familiar with is SNAP 5050, which is the program where providers, in this case community colleges, can be reimbursed for 50% of their expenses that they incur to serve recipients of SNAP 
students on their campuses to get them better connected to adult education, to career and technical education, to work-based learning, and then really to provide holistic support services comprised of both coaching or navigation staff and those supportive services like transportation, books, gaps in tuition that are really key for adults, especially in um, accessing uh, college. And I, my experience with SNAP 5050 uh, and SNAP ENT, it's, it's one of the most flexible funding streams in terms of how to equitably serve students. So to really meet students where they're at, when you think of colleges and all the adults who are struggling to re-enroll in college, to complete college, this is a really can, robust uh, funding stream that can better serve students. No, thanks for that explanation and um, and that angle on community colleges. And so this, I'm going to ask this question to both of you. Um, so you both work for community colleges, or Kate, you used to work for community colleges directly. So there are many different organizations that can be SNAP ENT providers. But in this case, why do you think community colleges are such a good fit as a, as a provider? So why don't we start with Nicole? Um, well, I think that community colleges are such a good provider because they're already uh, experts in the area of providing those career pathways to students and the students are already there. So the, the piece that we're plugging in is just uh, capitalizing on those students that are SNAP recipients because they're already doing the great work and the students are there. Okay, anything to add to that? I would completely agree with what Nicole shared. And I think in terms of the um, mechanics of the grant, community colleges also have a large amount of non-federal funding, which is what you need to be to expend to get the reimbursement. So between um, general funds, state property taxes, state grants, many of the financial assistance programs that states are, there's a really robust funding stream that colleges can intentionally allocate towards this program, get reimbursed, and then much like compound interest, you put it back into the program and it grows over time. Um, and so I think there's that piece. And then I think colleges also can, in many areas, and especially in rural areas, can really serve as that connective tissue between employers, between community-based organizations, between apprenticeship opportunities, human service agencies, workforce development boards, and providers. And so I think there's also a really great opportunity to leverage those connections and partnerships in this program. And because it's a 50-50 grant, everyone's investing their own resources. It really creates a different dynamic for partnerships than typically exist in other workforce development or higher ed grants. And I think it just it, it just hits home the fact that community colleges are already doing a lot of these things. They already have a lot of the infrastructure built into their institutions already. And if they don't have them internally, they have established partnerships. So they're really almost a one-stop shop for all of the services that are potentially available through SNAP employment and training. So, you know, we mentioned there's a bunch of different ways or different types of organizations that can be SNAP employment and training third-party providers. And there's and there's different contract structures. So um, you know the program is implemented or, or by the state uh, by a state agency, and there's and you contract a couple of different ways, either directly with the state uh, or through an intermediary. And that's where I want to that's where I want to focus our our conversation. But if Kate, if you wouldn't mind, because I know that you've been involved in sort of both iterations around uh, individual colleges and also intermediaries. 
Um, can you give sort of just a brief overview of, of how those contracts, what those contracts might look like? Sure. So I had the opportunity in Oregon to work collaboratively with our human service agency partners who are really phenomenal and then community college leaders and partners from across the state to develop our consortium, our SNAP 5050 consortium in Oregon. Um, and in that instance, we chose an intermediary model, meaning there is one contract with Portland Community College, and then we subcontracted with the other um, uh, 16 community colleges. And then that meant that for the um, state, they just had one contract with us and I was the main point of contact. So it allowed us to really scale quickly um, while also being flexible and nimble. Um, and then there's other and some of the technical assistance work have been able to do through National Skills Coalition and working with other states where there is a, a um, individual contracts between the state and a college, or and sometimes they have may have one provider um, that they contract with, and that provider is a community-based organization who contracts with all the colleges. Um, so I, I think that model also is very workable, I think, in terms of scaling quickly. I've heard from human service partners, especially for community colleges, they really appreciate an intermediary model in some capacity. Um, because it, um, you know, in some ways it's translating between two different worlds a bit and two different fiscal systems. And so really helps to build those partnerships um, in, in a way that that works for both partners. No, that's interesting. And it's, um, you know, I'm glad you mentioned how the states appreciate that intermediary model, because that's really what I want to focus um, more of our conversation today. And so if I could shift to Nicole, so LCTCS is uh, the intermediary for the community colleges in the state. So it, has this always been the model that Louisiana has taken or did you, it, or was there a model in the state that, hey, no, we want to try something different? Well, it has not always existed. Um, previously, the majority of the providers have been community-based organizations. So our relationship with our state agency came about in the fall of 2020. So we're still relatively new to this. Um, when we entered into um, our contract, we only had one college. And so we, 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 were, we were kind of the blind leading the blind. You know, our state agency didn't really understand, you know, the community college model. We didn't understand SNAP ENT. And so we were kind of learning together. So the way our relationship has really uh, evolved in this short period of time has, has been um, really great. Uh, we did bring on a college of ours that was an independent provider prior to um, the intermediary model. And they had been a provider on their own for about two, two possibly three years prior to coming under our umbrella. So also, a learning curve just with them having already done their own thing and being the the experts, and then having to get become accustomed to not going directly to the state agency, and then learning to work with me as that intermediary. But um, one of the best things I feel about the relationship is that I speak the college's language. Um, you know, with the state agency not really knowing how colleges work. 
Um, sometimes I would have to remind them that, you know, we are also a state agency. So different things with, you know, regulations and guidelines and, you know, uh, travel, you name it, that sometimes with them having uh, dealt prior or prior to our relationship with community-based organizations, there was a lot of things that they didn't realize that we're already doing. <laughs> but um, it, it's it's been a really, it's been a really good relationship, I will say, but it has been slow going and I think it is going to take us longer uh, to scale up. We started with the one, um, currently we have three and then this next federal fiscal year, we're looking at adding three more providers. Oh, that's so, awesome. Yes, that's awesome. Excited about the growth that we've had. Yeah, so it sounds like, it sounds like originally there were individual providers that were colleges that could contract directly or did contract directly with the state, but pri primarily it was community-based organizations. So yeah. when the state decided to move to an intermediary model, do you have, did they explain like what their rationale was behind that shift? Well, the rationale um, from a leadership standpoint, I know with our system president, they had just done some exit interviews with students and the number one reason that students gave for you know not being able to continue their education was those external factors those barriers that snap ENT helps to alleviate you know child care issues um work you know just the, the work-life balance um just affordability all of those things that snap ENT serves to try to uh help students to be able to navigate, those were the number one reasons why those students couldn't persist. And so with that in mind, that's when our system president said, what a great partnership to be able to leverage those funds and to assist these students with staying in school and, you know, getting a return on that. No, and that's, partnership. go ahead. Yeah, and I think that's so important. You know, I know a lot of times some of these initiatives that you see is particularly with systems, with college systems, is that it takes that, you know, that champion, that leader who, um, you know, gets behind the initiative and really sort of pushes things because, you know, I know my experience, I know, I know both of your experiences, it's not an easy program to implement. And so I think you have to have that you know, that that champion who's willing to take a few bumps and bruises to kind of move things in the right direction. Um, so it sounds like leadership at LCPCS was the driver behind it on the college side. But so how does the state, does the state, were they welcoming? Did they see it as a benefit? Like, were they like, no, we, that's way too complicated. We're not interested in that. So what does that, what did that look like? Um, they are so excited about our relationship because Basically, we're that foot in the door. I think it would have been very slow going for them to find out, okay, who's the gatekeeper? How, how do we get in? Um, and even now, um, with just us developing the relationship and adding these providers, um, had it not been for this intermediary model um, and just the relationships that we already have, of course, with our colleges and being able to present it on a large scale, I don't think that we'd be looking at adding, you know, three more providers this year if it were not for this model. The state would not have been able to have that same type of reach. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and getting into that scalability piece that Kate had mentioned. Um, so when you talk about 
because uh, you're you work with the Department of Child and Family Services, uh, which is the state agency. So you have, I mean, you're the you're you're it at at uh, LCTCS. So who do you work with? What does your relationship look like with the state agency? Like, do you have a counterpart there? Do you work I with do. whoever will I pick up the phone? Or we have a a, a program manager. Um, one of the program managers there is we are his baby. <laughs> so he has us and he has the uh, the tribal council. Um, so he is a phone call or email away. If I have a question, I'm, I have full access um, to him. And this relationship, like I said, has has developed. <laughs> it wasn't always that way, but I, I, thankfully we're, we're there now. And I think we both look at each other as an ally to be able to do this work together because I wouldn't be able to do it without him and he wouldn't be able to do it without me. So I guess you can't say that two government agencies can never work together. So um, so that's so that's a that's a really good um, sounds like a really good relationship. And it's and, you know, it's challenging because, you know, you're talking about a whole statewide system. Um, working with with a, a state agency, not just an individual college. And so now I want to shift to Kate because Kate's experience is a little bit different. Um, and I'm wondering, Kate, you mentioned it earlier. You talked about how um, in your individual institution, Portland Community College, served as the intermediary. So was it similar to Louisiana where there were individual um, institutions as providers, and then you shifted to an intermediary model, or like, what did that look like when it started? Yeah, we um, had a bit of a different path. Um, so our SNAP 5050, or it's called STEP in Oregon consortium, actually came out of the TACT grant in mm. Oregon. So there was a TACT grant where a consortium of all 17 colleges had worked on round one um, proposal that was really based on our career pathways framework in Oregon, the stackable credentials that integrate student support that lead to jobs that map to local labor market demand and that create economic mobility. So we had this career pathways framework that was really effective. Um, we had this TACT-1 grant where we had integrated coaches into the model and found that we were getting really great outcomes. And so in our evaluation, we found that we were closing opportunity gaps. So our students of color were completing credentials at a similar rate to their white peers. Um, and at some colleges at PCCs included, our students of color were retaining jobs at a higher rate than our than their white peers. And then we dove into that and found that a, a large percentage of our students were also adult education and were also recipients of SNAP. So we we're really fortunate that our evaluator had experience um, with Washington's BFET model, the SNAP 5050 kind of um, champion and, and really leader in the field. Um, and so recommended we look into SNAP 5050 to sustain some of the work. And so we had a partnership with Department of Human Services. I had worked in many programs um, at the college that were funded by human service. So I was fairly familiar with the different systems on the TANF side or the SNAP side. Um, and so really from there, that's how we built out our consortium. And so it's kind of a coalition of the willing the first year. Um, we agreed that PCC would take the lead and I had the opportunity to do that um, because of 
uh, existing relationships and we other colleges had led other large consortium grants. And so there's kind of an ethos of sharing um, and collaboration in Oregon. Um, I think it's important to note Oregon is not a college system. It's 17 very independently accredited colleges. Um, so we just agreed um, initially it was six colleges that started out and um, but the, the plan all along was to bring all 17 on board. Um, our human service partners really appreciated that because they were trying to scale um, the program significantly in the state and having a lead with um, the college helped them focus on providing additional support to community-based organizations. From the college leader lens, it really mapped in and fit with the mission and vision of the colleges. So really being more intentional about centering racial equity, centering racial opportunity, looking at those racial wealth gaps, um, the support gaps for parenting students, for reentry students. And so I think it, it fit with the mission and priorities of the college um, as well. And it also mapped to our, our local labor market needs and that employers needed a talented workforce pipeline. And so that's how we really developed the consortium. And then out of that created a community of practice, which has been a, a feature of many of these consortium projects in Oregon. And something that I um, can't emphasize enough, the value of that, whatever the, the format for the actual co contract, I think there's such a value in bringing together um, the different partners who are scaling the work. Um, in many instances, a rural community colleges um, were able to really nimbly respond and grow their programs faster than some of the large urban colleges. And so we learned about their strategies. We we're able to learn about outreach. So I just think that was um, one of the key elements of, of how we developed the intermediary model. Um, and then we really, it also in, in having Portland Community College, which is the largest higher ed institution in the state, um, had a more administrative capacity to support the project too. And so that really allowed us to all collaborate effectively in the state and advocate for what we needed with our college administrators, with state policymakers, and with human service um, agency. And I think the other thing I'd add to that is that I do think it really transformed on both ends how colleges were approaching work with students and considering themselves as anti-poverty providers. And conversely, how human services started really thinking about education and career pathways as their focus to get their families out of poverty and to, to increase family well-being. That, that's actually quite quite an interesting um, path to, to becoming what it is now. And so so just to, just for clarification, so PCC was the tact recipient. And so already, or was there a different institution that had the no, tact grant? No, sorry, yeah. A different institution led the tact um, grant. Uh, okay. And so that was a different institution had led that consortium. Um, a different institution previously had housed and hosted the Career Pathways Alliance, um, a different, you know, adult education kind of partnerships, their colleges would shift the lead. So there was kind of an agreement amongst the colleges to take turns taking the lead on large grants. The Strengthening Community Colleges grant is now led as a consortium by a different college. So in although there's not a state system, there's a kind of a an agreement in a way that colleges have worked together to really leverage capacity um, and, and collaborate across the state. I want to ask a question like I did to Nicole around leadership. So was there, a, was it just PCC's turn or was there a specific leadership push from PCC to be the lead on this SNAP ENT project? That's a great question. Um, 
And I don't think I was entirely privy to those conversations, but I do think, um, I think that um, partly as PCC had been a longstanding partner with Department of Human Services with the jobs program through the TANF grant, had an existing SNAP um, employment and training grant, um, not SNAP 5050, but a different program. And so I think, and, and just had capacity at that point in time. Um, so I think that was generally the college presidents were very collaborative. There is a higher education coordinating commission. And so they would weigh in community mm. college association. Um, so I think it was um, fairly collaboratively determined for each grant that comes up and just looking at um, capacity and funding needs to across the state. You did have a president that was quite uh, supportive of it though, didn't yes. you? Yes. Yes, I will say in terms of scaling this work, um, President Mark Mitsui came in, I think, a year or two after we had established the consortium and had been in the Obama administration, was really focused on integrating um, access to public benefits along with federal um, financial aid and different community college uh, resources. So President Mitsui was a hugely instrumental in championing um, and expanding the, the work that we were doing and also making sure that you know all community colleges in the state were part of the project too no that's yeah that it it does go a long way when you have a, when you have support at the leadership level so when you started to put this together did the state encourage the intermediary model or did they not care as long as people were becoming providers or were they like we want to scale this and this is the most efficient way to do it they were i mean they were very collaborative and and you know, always said if you want to do it um, as separate contracts, um, but I think they were they were definitely hoping we would we would go with an intermediary model because it's it saves them time and and I think one of the things to think about with that is it's not only the program design and having a common framework, but it's also all the paperwork, it's all the mm. invoicing, it's all the process, the grant guide, and so having one common. Um, you know, grant approach. And it also makes it a lot easier for co other colleges to pick it up because they can, you kind of hand them a framework that they can tailor to their local college needs, but they're not having to reinvent everything from scratch. LCTCS is, is a true college system statewide. And I know you said Oregon isn't a state system, but they're an association. There's an association that's sort of, I don't know, herds the cats, so to speak. So do you know why? Was was there any discussion around having the association take the lead as the intermediary or was there capacity issues or they just want nothing to do with it and you guys were better positioned at PCC? I think we were better positioned at PCC. I think it was capacity issues, um, familiarity with the partners. Um, I think the partnerships are really important. I don't want to, I, I think I, I don't want to lack emphasizing that. I think that is key about this grant. Um, and so I think that was really how we landed there. Um, but certainly I've seen in other states, uh, you know, in California, their community college association leads it. I've seen it go that route in other states. I think in states with like Louisiana, like Virginia with strong state systems, it's really great. Um, I think the big thing is it needs to work for human services, for the partners and make sure that it stays um, centered in the needs of students. So I think that is one advantage in having a college um, drive it is I was also, I was leading the consortium, but I was also leading our local grant. And so I was able to hear 
very regularly from students what was working and what was not, as well as from the coaches, the faculty, other leaders. And so I think that can certainly happen at a state system level too, but I, I think that's the other key is making sure that it stays grounded, not in the systems or process, but in the needs of the students. So thank you guys both for talking about how your models were set up and the differences and similarities. So we'll go back to Nicole. So why do you think a state would choose not to have an intermediary model? Like, is there any sort of advantage to just doing or any, I guess, structure in the state that would prevent that that model? And then um, we'll have Kate weigh in as well. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Um, and sometimes I, I ask that question myself to myself um, because I think sometimes I get the impression from our state agency that they would love to be very hands-on with the colleges instead of having to go through me as the, I hate to say the gatekeeper, but I really um, sometimes advocate for the colleges and I'll use this example. Um, you all know how tedious sometimes some of the um, <laughs> reimbursement invoice requests and the paper trail can be. And I will say, we can't do that just on a large scale, you know, there's certain things that we, we can't do. Uh, an example of that, we had uh, gas cards that were purchased for students and they wanted the colleges to turn in individual students' receipt of purchase. And I said, no way, <laughs> we will not be doing that. Right now we're at three colleges, but our ultimate goal is to get to 12. And I am not asking 12 different colleges to ask for individual receipts for students. <laughs> no. <laughs> so had it been a situation where maybe they were in touch with that contact person at the school, then they probably would have been successful in getting individual receipts. Um, but because we have the big picture view instead of you know um, that individualized approach, then we can say that, that from a system perspective, that's not scalable to get individual um, receipts. So from that aspect, I could see them wanting to have that individualized relationship with each college, but just for continuity um, and for scalability, uh, this is the better you know, relationship for, for our colleges seems like creating more work for themselves too so exactly exactly it's like one of those are you really sure that's what you would want right <laughs> right Kate you have any thoughts on that yeah I think sometimes it's also just a matter of it does take a bit of more time sometimes to line up the intermediary and getting all the colleges work together particularly if there's not a state system and there's all different student records systems or financial systems or you know, many different CFOs in the mix. So I think it can initially take a little bit longer to get everyone lined up and working together. Uh, and so sometimes the colleges are just ready to, I mean, excuse me, the colleges are ready to go and the human service agency is ready to go. So there's individual, you know, contracts that come out of that. Um, so I think that's sometimes it's just trying to be responsive to providers. And um, what I've seen from human service agencies throughout the country is they are, especially through this 
reimbursement model, they try not to be terribly directive because it is one of those, you know, the that other agency or organization or college is putting up half of their own resources. So I think that does sometimes lead to different iterations and or within a state of of how that's organized. No, that's a good point. I, I feel like because it is a reimbursement model. So the college has to put out 100% of the expenses for whatever service they're going to providing and then they get reimbursed 50%. So they don't want people telling them how to spend their money necessarily if they're the ones on the hook for it. So that's an interesting perspective. I'm interested to, from both your perspectives and your experiences in your state. So do you see, do you see an advantage of, um, you know, Kate versus like your model when you talk about a lead college being an intermediary versus a state system where Nicole is, or is it, does it matter? It's like an intermediary is an intermediary. It doesn't matter. I've seen both models work really well and be very effective. And so I think it's just part of it is having the right champion and leader. Um, I think the benefit of whether it's a state system, a community college association, or an individual college really just needs to have clarity around what the vision is, what the mission is, to be willing to work through some of the challenges, to champion the initiative. Um, but I think it's more the the value of that collective and consortium model. I think that's um, the huge benefit. And what happened, I'll use Oregon as an example, but in having a consortium uh, established that was focused on this, we were able to hear a lot about what was working and where there are continued obstacles for students. So we were finding, well, what about the students who aren't on SNAP or what about other students? And so from that foundation that was laid with our SNAP 5050 grant, we were able to then uh, establish another statewide coalition and effort called Pathways to Opportunity that was really focused on connecting more adult students of color, parenting students to college and connecting them with benefits as part of that so that they could, as Nicole lifted up, really address those costs of college that are preventing many students from enrolling or completing. And then from there, we were able to really advocate for some policy and investments that, that really shifted things. And that was the Benefit Navigator Bill in Oregon. There's a small group of us who really lifted up. You know what? So they have benefits, but really a lot of our adult students need help navigating all these different systems. And so we were able to get that bill passed to, to really um, uh, to get students involved in the advocacy. And so none of that would have happened without SNAP 5050. And so I think whether it's a state system, a community college association, or an individual college, it's really understanding the value of that collective um, energy and focus on serving students and, and transforming systems. Um, and then making sure it's still rooted in in the needs of students. And I think, you know, there's risk of being getting disconnected of that at college leadership level, at state system leadership level, or community college association. So it's not presuming any one um, entity is better positioned to, to stay rooted and, and focused on student needs. Nicole, did you have anything to add to that? The only thing I can say from the intermediary model, I think that was um not not a challenge, but sometimes that learning curve with sometimes I think colleges may view us as the intermediary as big brother. And I just had to establish that relationship with you're the expert on what's going on on your campus. So I'm not telling you 
how to do what you're doing. I'm basically asking you, what are you doing on your campus and how we can make snappy and see fit with what you're already doing. I'm not asking you to, to reinvent the wheel or telling you what to do. And I think once we establish that rapport and that understanding that basically I'm just telling you how to run snappy and see, that's it. You keep doing whatever you're doing and whatever's working on your campus. I think we were smooth sailing after that. But I think that's always the sometimes the um, connotation of the of the system office that, you know, we're the boss and we're telling them what to do. <laughs> that, yeah, no, that's a very interesting perspective, especially when you look at, you know, you look at a state system versus, you know, another intermediary model where like even state associations don't quite have the. I'll, I'll use the word authority to sort of dictate what their what the colleges in the state are doing, whereas a system has more of that sort of, hey, we're the state system, you know, we sort of set the guidelines. So I can understand where they're coming from, like, oh, here they go again. The system's telling us what to do. Yes. And so I think that it's important to bring up, you know, how you focused on it's that individual relationship building and you know, ultimately getting them to understand it's in their best interest and it's in the best interest of the students to sort of, you know, work with us. And also, you know, you also have to look at you. There is a positive to a system as well. You have more, um, you know, there might be more opportunities for streamlining processes and different things like that. So it could be it could make their their lives even easier. Yes, and then each individual college also has different um, resources and capacity. So that's why our system president, president did not want to roll it out as an initiative and a mandate to say that all 12 of our you know, colleges had to have the program. It's when the capacity is available and when, when the time is right for that institution. And I'd also say they had the, um, and they also have the uh, resources to fund you. Like that, that is a, you know, to build that capacity to have a dedicated person, not all entities can do that. So I think, you know, having the system have more resources to fund a position like yours, I think is important um, concept to, or important piece of information to add. Um, so as we wrap up, I, I just want to give you, you both of you uh, an opportunity to, to basically share any final thoughts or any pieces of advice that you might have if, if someone's listening who is a, you know, a, either a system or a lead college or is, you know, just interested in becoming a SNAP provider. Um, if you had any words of wisdom uh, for those individuals. So I think one thing I want to highlight that a system is well poised to do is just the opportunity to better uh, get better at data and assess what works and share the story going forward. So I think we certainly know with SNAP employment and training what doesn't work. So we know work requirements doesn't do not work. We know time limits are arbitrary and really bureaucratic and burdensome and cruel uh, impact on adults and families and children. And we know that work first models that push people into any job are really based on racist and sexist stereotypes and also don't work. And so we know it doesn't work, but we also have a, and we know career pathways work, we know educational attainment works, but there's a great opportunity to look within SNAP ENT is what is that set of services and resources that really do make a difference so we can scale that and apply that to other transformations at the college. So I think going forward, that's where a lot of opportunity lies is, is to really share the story. Virginia started doing a really 
great job of looking at their data and disaggregating that, um, looking at educational attainment, at earnings, at long-term economic mobility. And then I guess the, the other thing for colleges that are just considering is I would say absolutely do this, like make it a priority to become a SNAP 50-50 provider. Um, whatever that looks like in your state, I just think it has the ability to really align systems within the college. So I think after SNAP 50-50, I've seen the workforce and the adult ed and the student services and the basic needs and security food pantry folks working together in a really different way. Um, it has the opportunity to transform partnerships in the community. And it because of its flexibility, once you get through the logistics of getting the, the project stood up, uh, it really can close the gaps that you that colleges struggle to provide for students um, that are limited through WIOA funding or other emergency funds that come. SNAP 5050 has a huge, huge potential to really advance equity goals and increase opportunities. So I think just find a way to do it, access ACCTs, technical assistance, talk to other providers. Um, there's a really great network of, of leaders and folks who have been doing the work who want to share the information because they've seen what an impact it has on students. Thanks. And I'll just add one thing before Nicole weighs in. And you mentioned uh, data and sharing what works. And I think that becomes extremely important when you're looking at when policy gets written. So you're looking at the Farm Bill being reauthorized this year. We're looking at like um, modifications or, you know, things that we want to include or change or, um, you know, do differently in the farm bill, which is where SNAP ENT lives. And so I think, you know, having the data to share to say, this is actually what works and here's why, and we have the evidence to prove it. And here's, you know, other than just, just coming at it from a, you know, sort of anecdotal, well, these policies are X, Y, or Z. I think you have some, you know, real ability to shape what the program looks like going forward. So, um, yeah, I thought that was an important point. So, Nicole, last word to you. Um, just echoing, you know, everything that Steve, you just said, and, and um, what Kate shared. And I think that a lot of times uh, colleges that have reservations, a lot of it is surrounding capacity. I think on so many campuses, you already have individuals that are wearing, you know, many different hats and they just say, okay, just adding one more thing. We, we can't, we're at capacity. But just a reminder to colleges that you're already doing this work. The students are already there. Don't reinvent the wheel. Um, I know in, for a lot of our colleges, uh, admissions offices are already moving to a case management model. So basically plugging in SNAP ENT to the great work that you're already doing. And then remember, you can always start small and scale up. I think a lot of times the reservation is, oh my gosh, how are we going to roll this out to our entire student population? You don't have to. <laughs> so I think just keeping that in mind a lot of times um, is just to start small. And then once once you figure it out and, and have it going, then you can always you know increase the size of your program. I would just like to thank my guests, Nicole and Kate, again. Uh, that was a fascinating conversation, and I really appreciate the different viewpoints on the on the uh, intermediary models, how they came to be, sort of what the advantages and disadvantages and the relationships with the state are, and how they both serve um, the students at their institutions. <laughs>